John chapters 18 through 20 contain the, the climactic events in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Chapter 18 records Christ's betrayal. Chapter 19, his crucifixion and death. And chapter 20, crescendos in his resurrection from the dead. For 17 chapters, John has been drawing our attention in this direction to these moments when Jesus, through no fault of his own, would willingly suffer for the sin of the world. For 17 chapters, he, Jesus has continued his march toward the cross on which he would willingly give himself in love for the world. He is our sovereign. And yet he became our substitute by giving his life to give us life. And this reality comes through in this first portion of chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, which we considered together two weeks ago. There in the Garden of Gethsemane at this time of his arrest, Jesus spoke of drinking the cup that was given to him by our Heavenly Father. And this cup speaks of justice and, and God's just wrath towards sin. God's wrath is just. And in response to His holiness and love, because God cares about upholding what's right and holding accountable all that is wrong and wicked. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And that Jesus drank this cup to the bitter end means that you, if you know Him as your sovereign and substitute, will never drink even one drop. It means that all your sins, past and present and future, have already been justly punished by God in Christ so that you can be justly freed from punishment by Christ. It means that, that you can be restored to God to enjoy everlasting life with Him without fear of shame or condemnation of any kind. What love. What mercy. What grace this is. How could we ever refuse such a gift? And yet, amazingly, many do. Even one of his own disciples betrayed him. As we saw in the first 11 chapters here, or I'm sorry, the first 11 verses here in this chapter. 
And this theme of rejection continues throughout, through the course of the chapter. For in verses 12 through 27, our focus today, we learn that Jesus was also spurned by his own people, the Jewish people, and even denied by his own right-hand man, maybe his closest friend. Betrayed by Judas, rejected by the Jews, denied by Peter. The picture here is one of utter abandonment as Jesus approaches the cross to suffer its scorn and shame alone. And the point is this, this great truth that undergirds really the whole of our Christian lives and even our daily life in Christ. The the point is this. This is what I believe John is trying to bring out from this account. Though we fail him, He is faithful still. And so see again our human failure and the faithfulness of Christ as we read together John chapter 18, verses 12 through 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain... And the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He, Peter, said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves and Peter also was standing with them and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? 
Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for our time this morning, so graciously granted to consider again your word and, oh, it's truth that is so very applicable to each of our lives. Ask this morning, God, that you would really draw us nearer to Christ today, that you'd really help us to to see our, to see him, to see who he is and see our relation to him more clearly. I really pray that you would help us even to see ourselves, if at all applicable, to see ourselves in the other people mentioned here in this passage, Annas or the soldiers or even Peter himself. Make us to be receptive to all that you'd want to say to us this morning, God. And most of all, will you please continue to pour forth your grace upon each of our hearts that we might live live grace-filled lives with each and every day. And we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Here's how I want to approach this. Here in this passage, we have two scenes that are occurring simultaneously. Scene one pictures Jesus being taken to be questioned by Annas, the high priest. And while that's happening over here, the camera then pans to another scene that pictures Peter being questioned in the courtyard of the high priest. And John cuts back and forth between these two scenes as if wanting us to see the one in light of the other because they both convey essentially the same thing, rejection and denial. And these two scenes are presented to us in four parts, and so I want to look at each part as it's presented, and then I want to make some final observations in conclusion. In verses 12 through 14, scene 1, part 1. Jesus is arrested and led from the Garden of Gethsemane back through the Kidron Valley to Jerusalem to appear before a man named Annas. Annas, in verse 19, 
is called the high priest, though in actuality, he wasn't the acting high priest at the time. That was Caiaphas. Annas had served, however, as high priest previously, historically from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15 until he was unexpectedly removed from that seat of power by the Romans. Now, we don't know exactly what he did to upset the Romans, but his removal from power clearly upset the Jews because the high priesthood was typically a lifetime appointment. So in his place, at least we know this historically, at least four of Annas' sons rotated through, and by the time of Christ's trial here, it was Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who held the office. But, but Caiaphas was basically just a front man because as far as the Jews were concerned, Annas was the real power behind the throne. And this helps explain why the arresting officers took Jesus to Annas first before Annas eventually sent him to Caiaphas. Our attention is then drawn to the second scene. Verses 15 through 18, where we find Peter following Jesus to the courtyard. Another unnamed disciple, presumably John, who we don't know for sure, came with him. And this disciple had some connections of some sort with the high priest. And there's a just wide speculation about what these connections entailed, but maybe it was through John's father, Zebedee. Whatever the case, this disciple, we're told, was allowed entrance into the courtyard without obstruction and then returned to the door to vouch for Peter. And Peter, as Peter enters, he's asked by the girl standing there at the door if he's a follower of Christ. And thus we find here the first of Peter's three denials recorded in verse 17. So, so she says, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And, she, and Peter said, succinctly, I'm not. And I think the phrasing of this girl's question and the other questions, as we'll see later, is significant. I just, I just think it's important to note that, that she didn't ask this question in an open-ended way. Instead, she asked in a way that put Peter on the defense, right? It put Peter on the defense in, in a way that the only, quote, safe answer was the negative answer. In other words, the girl's question called for a negative response. You, you aren't one of his disciples, are you? And Peter, I think, being caught off guard, answered accordingly. And I'm sure that you've been in similar situations as we all have, surrounded by those, I mean literally surrounded by those who do not share your love for God or your faith in Christ, who talk in a manner that presumes a negative response. And when questioned in this way and caught off guard, the temptation, right, to blend 
in is not easily overcome. And so there stands Peter warming himself in the cold night air while denying any allegiance to Christ. Verse 19, the narrative shifts back to Jesus as he's being questioned by Annas. Annas wants to know about Christ's disciples and his teaching, concerned, it seems, at least from his perspective, about this growing band of Christ followers who do not tow the party line. <laughs> That's applicable. And in response to Annas, Jesus points to the breadth of his ministry, a very public ministry, saying in verses 20 through 21 that from the beginning, from the very beginning, he's spoken freely and openly in the synagogues, in the temple, where all kinds of people gather. He has nothing to hide. And if they really want to know what his disciples believe about him and his teaching, ask them. If Annas really wanted the truth, if that was his primary concern, there were many, many, many people who could speak on Christ's behalf. But that's the problem. Annas didn't want the truth. He didn't want this case decided by the evidence. He had already reached his conclusion and was looking for ways to justify it. So Jesus, in a very subtle but very purposeful and skillful way, by the, by the way, exposed the deceitfulness of this man's heart, and those nearby took offense. One of the officers, we're told, struck Jesus. Is this how you answer the high priest, he demanded? But Jesus didn't back down. If what I said is wrong, he, he said, show me, basically. Bear witness. But if what I said is right, you have no reason to strike me. Important detail is that in Jewish courts, bearing witness meant everything. Even more than it, than it does in our courts today. Hebrew law required at least two witnesses to testify against the defendant, and their testimony must not only agree, but be complete. In other words, a witness was deemed credible only if they could tell the whole story from beginning to end. That is every single detail about the alleged crime. So Jesus in verse 23 here, again, in a skillful way, exposing the underhandedness of this trial, is in effect putting the onus on Annas to bring forth the necessary witnesses. And thus Annas in verse 24, knowing he's been outplayed, just sends him off to Caiaphas, who was the acting priest at the time. We cut back to Peter, 
with Peter warming himself by the fire. Already he has denied any allegiance to Christ, but the circumstances surrounding his second and third denials grow even more pressure-packed. This second denial follows the exact same line of questioning as the first, but with one important distinction. Whereas it was just one servant girl who queried Peter at first, now notice there are many others. Now there is a group of people, a they. Now there is a they. A they who likewise say to Peter, you are not one of his, you are not one, you are not, I mean, they're coming at him from all angles. You are not one of his disciples, are you? And just as at first, Peter replied, no, I'm not. And then the scene intensifies. We're told in Luke that about an hour passed between the second and third denial. That's a long time to think about what you're doing. About an hour passed between the second and third denial when an eyewitness emerges. Someone who was in Gethsemane at the time of Christ's arrest and actually saw Peter there. Did I not see you in the garden with Jesus? He accused. Didn't I see you draw your sword in defense of Jesus? Did I not see you cut off a man's ear and then, what are the odds, right? That man is a relative of mine. You were there. And you know him. And again, Peter denies everything. And then the rooster crows, just as Jesus foretold. Now Mark, in his gospel, says at this point, Peter actually began to invoke a curse on himself and, and to swear, insisting, insisting, I do not know this man of whom you speak. In other words, so vehement, so adamant was Peter's denial at this point. He was literally cursing and swearing and wouldn't even refer to Jesus by name. Just this man. And so the picture here is as Jesus testifies faithfully before Annas, Peter denies his faith before others. One author said, Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing, while Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. Upon his arrest in the garden, remember, Jesus boldly said, I am. And yet Peter's response here in the courtyard is a very sad, I am not. 
And I want to spend our remaining moments here asking what can be learned from these sad events? And how might these things apply to our lives today? And I want to take each scene and try to glean from each scene. From Annas, I think, we see quite clearly the failure to accept Christ for who he clearly is. This wasn't the first time their paths had crossed. Given his priestly role and status among the Jews, certainly Annas had observed Jesus many, many, many times. He heard the things that Jesus taught about God and God's kingdom and how a person enters the kingdom. He had seen firsthand the many things that Jesus did throughout his ministry, his interactions with others, how Jesus interacted with others, and his many miracles along the way, the great and obvious change that Jesus was making in people's lives, Annas knew it very well. He knew what Jesus was all about. He knew what Jesus stood for, and he could have talked to any number of folks throughout Jerusalem and all Judea if he really wanted the truth, but he didn't. Sadly, Annas was hard of heart. And I want to say that some of the most difficult people that I've encountered are people who are simply unteachable and therefore unwilling to consider anything outside of their own preconceived notions. You know these people? People today are like Annas in that they oppose Christ or even the idea of Christ without ever really giving thought to the evidence at hand. Drawing a wrong conclusion, as Annas did, and then looking for ways to support it. Being hard of heart, we become entrenched in our faulty way of thinking. And I say we because I see and hear of this type of thing all the time, even in our local churches. I want to say this as tenderly and with all due respect as possible. But I cannot tell you how many times over the years I have looked out from this pulpit to see people who have essentially built a fortress around their own hearts. They hold fast to their own faulty opinions. They draw their own wrong conclusions and they are dead set against allowing God's truth to penetrate their hearts. I see it all the time. They'll never admit to this. They will never admit to this. But their body language, their obvious disinterest, their casual apathetic 
approach to what God is revealing in these precious moments gives them away. And I want to say to you, do not be like that. I think one application to be gleaned from Annas and his poor example, if nothing else, is to be teachable. And honest in admitting that you don't have all the answers. But as you look to Jesus and consider who he is, and your relation to him, you can find grace from God, who is the answer. Listen, do not be proud of your wrong conclusions. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. From Peter, we see failure of another kind. Honestly, there are a number of applications to draw from Peter's poor example here. We could talk about, we could, we could talk about the importance of being prepared to give an answer for your faith, for the hope that lies within you. Or the insidious nature of sin, how just one compromise can so easily lead to another and then another. Or maybe the danger of of overconfidence, how Peter, isn't this true, how Peter always seemed, by the way, I, I like Peter, how Peter always seemed to talk a big game, but never actually get in the game. Rarely follow through. Even when Jesus told Peter that Peter would deny him, he refused to listen. Some commentators make the point that Peter's mistake was in choosing the wrong crowd. That he threw his lot in with unbelievers as he warmed himself by the fire Others make the point that even being by the fire was a mistake, suggesting that while Jesus is over here being interrogated, Peter is making himself comfortable over here. And though, though I agree that running with the wrong crowd will wreak havoc on your ability to stand strong and stay the course, I agree with that. And though I agree that dependence on creature comforts can, in fact, lead you astray. I agree with that. I don't think Peter's real problem was the crowd or his comfort. I, think, I don't think it was these external things, but something within, something much simpler and much more common, something that every single 
person in this room encounters maybe every single day? I think it was fear. I think Peter's fear simply got the best of him in those crucial moments, just like it gets the best of us sometimes when we face similar situations today. We've been there when someone is putting down religion, specifically our religion, your religion, when they down-talk Christians or Christianity, when in the moment you are significantly outnumbered as Peter was, and as significantly unprepared for the moment, it's hard to stand for what you believe and move forward in faith as you trust in God. Hear what I'm about to say. Peter had good reason to be afraid. He was afraid of being singled out. I've been afraid of being singled out. He was afraid of further questioning for which he was not prepared. I've been afraid of questions for which I'm not prepared. He was afraid literally for his life. I've never been afraid for my life. He had all sorts of reasons to fear. But therein lies the issue. Peter, Peter allowed fear to overwhelm his faith. And I suspect that we're all guilty of the same thing at one time or another. Last week, in his sermon, Sean just really spoke in a wonderful way on the prevalence of fear and how fear can have a crippling uh, effect on your faith, how fear of, of people or fear of circumstances can really cripple your faith. You see, though we speak of walking by faith, fear has a way of bringing us to a screeching halt. I do want to point out that, that Peter followed Jesus at all. That's commendable. Nearly all the other disciples fled. So for Peter to follow Christ at a time of great risk took huge commitment. The irony, however, is that though Peter drew close to Jesus by following him to the courtyard, he actually distanced himself from Jesus the closer he got. And the lesson for us is to learn from his mistake so that we won't make the same one. I want you to consider this with me. Really, only you can answer these questions. What are the areas in your life? What are the areas in your life where your fears are crippling your faith and thus serving to distance you from Christ? 
Maybe it's your health, your future, your family, something at work, school, church. Maybe it's in your relationships. Maybe it's something financial in nature. Maybe it's something much more personal, like you're just afraid of actually surrendering yourself, entrusting yourself to Jesus. In what areas of your life are you afraid to follow Him? And with whom are you afraid to identify as one of His followers? Identify your fears. Filter them. Filter your fears. It does no good to identify your fears unless you do something with them once you've identified your fears and then filter them through the many promises of God's Word. This this, this is, these, these many assurances are here for you. Stop trying to fight your fears on your own or through your own way of faulty thinking. And then cast all your cares upon Him because He so cares for you. You know, I titled this message Failure and the Faithfulness of Christ because thankfully failure isn't the end of the story. These events and all that John is conveying here are not primarily about how Annas rejected Jesus or how Peter denied him. Instead, the star of this show is Jesus Christ who who faithfully endured even unto death. Thankfully, Our assurance lies not in our ability to persevere, but in Him who persevered on our behalf. Now, why didn't Peter fall away entirely? Why? Because Jesus was keeping him and even praying for his preservation. Earlier, remember, Jesus had told Peter that Satan was wanting to sift him like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Peter, said Jesus, that your faith may not fail, in the ultimate sense, that it may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see, Jesus had begun a work of grace in Peter's life, and he who begins a good work in you will carry it on to completion. This is God's promise to us, given to us in His Word, and the promises of God are trustworthy because God is faithful. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new, brand spanking new every single morning. Great is His faithfulness. 
So what made the difference for Peter and why didn't he fall away completely? It was grace. It was God's grace. In his denial, Peter came face to face with his own inability and weakness and his need for grace. But in due time, really in just a matter of days, he met the resurrected Jesus who graciously received him and restored him and renewed him for ministry. And then not much longer after that, on that great day of Pentecost, this very same Peter stood before many of these very same Jewish leaders from whom he once fled in fear to bring forth the truth of Christ and convict them of their sin and present to them the grace of God. And many of them were saved. There is great hope. There is great, great hope in coming to see your need of grace. And I hope that we've all seen some of that this morning. For us, as for Peter, failure need not be final. Your, fa- your failure need not be final. For though we fail him, he is faithful still. And so let us then with confidence, with confidence, I love that. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this uh, time together. Please, as always, will you please continue to impress these truths, your truth, upon our hearts and lives. Amen.